Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, uh, one of the pastors here at Element 3 Church. And today, I want to start by sharing about a place that is very special to me. That is Providence Canyon. Now, this was the first place that my wife and I went hiking together at, like our first hiking trip. It was also the place that we got engaged. Aww. Now, Providence Canyon if you don't know, is this really, I mean, like, really bizarre place. Who's been there before? Okay, I need you guys to keep it quiet for a little bit. <laughs> for those that don't know, where do you think this mini Grand Canyon is located? See, if you, God, that was supposed to be like a, a stump thing. You're like, Arizona, the Georgia. This canyon right here is located outside of Lumpkin, Georgia, a.k.a. rural Georgia with a capital rural, y'all. And it is truly strange. On the way there, four hours, you are going to pass through just the normal Georgia landscape, rolling hills, forests, and then bam, seemingly out of nowhere, this gigantic canyon appears in the landscape. And y'all, it's one of the most stunning places that you can go in the southeast. But it also just feels really out of place, right? It feels like it does not belong here. And that's because, fun fact, it doesn't. You see, if you hike down to the bottom, you're gonna find water flowing along each of the gorges, right? Which is what cut these canyons into the clay, into the soil. And that's very normal. Even the Grand Canyon formed as a result of millions of years of slow river erosion. However, here's the thing a river did not create Providence Canyon because Providence Canyon formed entirely as the result of human decisions and poor agricultural practices. You see, in the early 1800s, farmers began to haphazardly clear-cut native forests in this area to create more and more farmland as Georgia grew without taking measures to limit soil erosion which meant that rainwater, its runoff, stopped being slowed or absorbed by these forests that had been there for millennia doing that exact job, becoming these small gullies that then rapidly eroded the clay even further, growing deeper and deeper, becoming five-foot ditches by 1850, which is, what, 170 years ago? Five-foot ditches. You see where this is going? And then which also then further concentrated runoff, increased erosion rates, and on and on until after just 100 years, y'all. Bam. This canyon existed. This dramatic alteration to the entire landscape of this ecosystem. Isn't that wild? Can you imagine the Grand Canyon just appearing after 150 years? Isn't that wild, yes? And I start here, I start with Providence Canyon, because I actually think it's a very apt metaphor for where we're going to go today in week two of Nope, our series on the Old Testament book of Jonah, which we kicked off last week. And that's because in the text today, our dear, beloved main character, Jonah, is going to reach Providence Canyon levels of insanity, of just debased behavior, quite frankly, so much so that it would be very easy for us to, as, as readers to assume 
that he's either this irredeemable person who was always terrible, who was just born that way, or to go the opposite direction, to assume that he's just suddenly snapped, right? That he has just overnight become unhinged and lost his ever-loving mind. However, what I want to posit to you at the top of this sermon is that what I think is happening here is very different. You see, I think this section is actually inviting us to consider a far more nuanced vision of character formation, one that reflects a process not unlike what created Providence Canyon, a vision of character formation that upholds that who we are and how we live, the behavior that flows out of us, that these things are neither permanent nor something that just appears overnight by happenstance. No, see, what it's going to posit, I believe, is that rather this is created by a slow process of becoming that's taking place day by day, choice by choice over the course of our entire life, a process that with enough time and a lack of self-awareness, will form canyons of brokenness in our lives, canyons of character flaws that can reshape utterly the entire landscape of who we are and how we live. In other words, this is going to be a super cheery sermon. (laughs) No, Jonah chapter 1 is a doozy. But I also think that if we're humble, if we're willing to listen, to meet it on its own terms, it also carries some very unexpected good news. So that's where we're going to go. But first, let's take it some time to briefly recap last week, which if you missed that message, I highly recommend that you go back, you check it out on our Vimeo or our podcast because we did a lot of legwork to kind of set up this very strange book called Jonah. And also, tangent, by the way, I have gotten more feedback on how mean I was to VeggieTales than any sermon I've ever given. Like, it is the only thing. I mean, I got up here and told you guys that I think Jonah is a satirical parable. You blazed right past that, and you said, you were mean to my vegetables, y'all. <laughs> E3, I love you guys. Anyways, <laughs> back, back to the point. Back to the point. Recall from last week, the book of Jonah is this book about a prophet, someone who is called by God to be his messenger. However, of like every other prophetic book, It is written in this totally unique genre that today we'd call satire. It's this hyperbolic, exaggerated story that's just filled with characters loaded with stereotypes who over the course of the story are going to shatter our expectations for them in the most ludicrous, quite frankly, hilarious way, which highlights, as I pointed out last week, the purpose of satire, the goal of satire. It's not to convey facts about specific people as much as it is to, through comedy, sneak behind us, the audience's defenses, to get us laughing before revealing that it's absurd, stupid characters are actually just what? Mirrors of us. Exaggerated versions of ourselves transforming its jokes about those people into biting critiques about our absurdities, our flaws, where we need to change. And that's critical as we engage the book of Jonah over the next few weeks. 
Because we must remember every week that Jonah is meant to be this mirror. This mirror that exists in the scriptures to reveal for us where humanity's worst tendencies have been allowed to fester within God's people. A mirror that is meant to reveal where we have allowed ourselves to become Jonah's in this world. All for the purpose of letting God, by his grace, get the Jonah out of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. And we saw all of this on display in Jonah's introduction, where we met the pure, faithful prophet Jonah, who who God sends to where? Who remembers? (laughs) To Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Israel's arch enemies. And how Jonah respond? Did he go? No. No, he says, nope. And he bolts in literally the exact opposite direction. And why does he run from this calling? Because he hates Ninevites. He hates them. He knows that God is going to find a way to somehow extend love and grace to these people that he despises. And he wants no part in their redemptive story. Dark stuff, right? So he just says, nope, I'm out of here. Not me, God. And that's where we're going to begin today. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went which direction? Well, no, what's the word? Down. Thank you. Someone can read. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. My wife's an English teacher. That's why she picked that up and y'all didn't. (laughs) Went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So I want you to imagine the scene. Jonah gets on board this ship, and God sends this storm that is hyperbolically described in the Hebrew as the most violent storm ever. Why? Because God wants Jonah to do what he's asked him, right? Which is to take God's love and grace to Nineveh. He's trying to get through to Jonah. He's trying to reach him. And in this storm, we are introduced to some new characters, these sailors, which, again, are characters that are meant to be loaded with stereotypes. You see, in the ancient world, sailors were presumed to be immoral brutes because, quite frankly, sailing in this day and age was not a profession for people who had their lives together. It was a dirty, dangerous, violent profession for people incapable of living amongst civilized society. We're talking criminals, ruffians, runaways, etc. So already, these guys show up, we're assuming, not great, right? But also notice this. What are they doing as the storm hits? Each is praying to their own God. So they're not just sailors, probably immoral, maybe criminals. They're pagan sailors, non-Israelites. Super not great, right? But it also makes sense of their behavior. Because if you understand ancient religions, you know that most included many fickle gods, any one of whom might get mad at you and just ruin your life for no reason. Zeus, the lightning bolt, gah! Right? So what are they doing? They're just hitting up as many as possible. Like, you up, <laughs> like, trying to, like, guess the right one, hopefully get it right, so he'll stop smiting them. It all makes a lot of sense, right? 
which is humorous, of course. But this also reveals something I think that's really interesting in this scene, which is that these sailors are at least somewhat spiritually attuned, right? They get that this is not a normal storm. They seem to understand that a God is trying to reach someone on their boat with this situation. And has God gotten their attention? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're panicking. They're frantically working to do whatever they can to stay afloat. They're even throwing their cargo, their livelihood overboard into the sea. And this is all very intentional by Jonah's author. Understand, we're meant to assume that these are not the most holy characters. And yet, they're aware that God's at work in the situation and they're active in response. Are you tracking with me on that so far? Good, because the author wants to contrast this with pure, faithful Jonah. (laughs) We continue. But Jonah had gone below deck where he did what? (laughs) Lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So in contrast to these sailors who get that God's moving, they're responding, they're trying to at least get this thing fixed with this divine being, we have Jonah who has responded by falling asleep below deck, which is meant to be ridiculous. It's okay to laugh. Who on earth could sleep on a boat during the most violent storm in the history of violent storms? Only our dear, pure prophet, Jonah. But notice, the author's also advancing this repeated thematic drumbeat that I was trying to point out in that first text that only Ricky got. It's this repeated thematic drumbeat of down, down, down. Jonah goes down to Joppa, down below deck, down into sleep, and soon, y'all, he's going to fall as down as you can possibly go on God's good creation. It's critical. I think it's very clever. See, what he's doing here through repetition is it's this very creative scene capturing Jonah's slow, progressive, spiritual journey to rock bottom. God called Jonah to something bigger than himself, to be a little less self-centered, a little bit about his own business. But Jonah said, nope, because he'd fed hate, tribalism, pride, all these areas of brokenness in his life so much that he's actually come to this moment where he truly believes that he knows better than God concerning what's best for him, what's best for his life, what's best for his calling, what's best for this world. No, God, the world would actually be better off without those lousy Ninevites. I think you got this one wrong. I'm not taking part this time. Thus, though his behavior appears insane, right, this is crazy. I think what the author's trying to get us to realize is that in reality, it's actually just flowing out of the character that Jonas developed slowly but surely across the course of his life. And now it's got him sinking lower and lower, down, down, down into the depths of spiritual apathy and death. However, even with that in mind, Who is actually suffering as a result of Jonah's behavior? Yeah, it's not Jonah, right? He's sleeping like a baby. It's everyone else who had the bad luck of coming into contact with this guy. It's everyone else around him. These sailors have to deal with the havoc left in the wake of Jonah's broken character. 
in decision-making while he's blissfully unaware in self-centered apathy. I mean, woof, am I right? And y'all, it gets worse. Verse six, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Great question. Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Who has to wake Jonah up? The immoral pagan captain, because he wants him to do what? To pray. You know, in case Jonah's God might notice them, y'all, that's hilarious. Has Jonah's God noticed them? Why, yes. Jonah gets that. Jonah knows that. But also, who has forgotten to pray? The immoral pagan sailors or pure faithful Jonah? Oh, my goodness. Do you guys see the comedy here? The pagan wakes up and rebukes God's prophet because he's the most faithless person on the ship. Y'all, I can't make this up. That's comedic gold. Verse seven, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So, okay, praying didn't work. So what do the sailors do? They all start rolling dice in the hopes that a God, whoever sent this storm, whichever God that is, is gonna move the dice in a way that reveals its cause. And does it work? It does. It points to Jonah. So they question him to figure out what's going on. Who are you? What's your job? Where are you from? And of course, Jonah's got it. Jonah, so he provides the most tone-deaf response in the history of all tone-deaf responses. Verse nine, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. We're gonna come back to that in a second. This terrified the sailors and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down? So I just want to walk through this step by step. So Jonah says, first, I'm a member of God's people. Then he ignores their question about his job, since rebellious prophet sounds pretty bad. And then he shares what God he worships, which is not a question that they asked, if you notice. And y'all, I could not make this up. Jonah, in effect, says, I worship the God who controls the sea and storms. Can you imagine? A more idiotic response. First, first, let's just get past the, the obvious point. Does Jonah worship or show respect for God? No, no. I mean, this is like the epitome of religious hypocrisy, of sounding religious while not living what you preach, which, of course, Jonah is way too arrogant to see is going on. But do the sailors see what's going on here? Why, yes, they do, because they're mortified. And then the author, he gives us this flashback to when Jordan boarded the ship, where apparently he mentioned running from his God, which didn't startle them at the time, because, you know, there's loads of gods, you do you, fam, whatever. That's because, obviously, Jonah did not mention at that point aborting the ship that his God controls the sea. And now he's like, oopsies, I forgot to tell you that before. Get it on a boat with you to flee from that God. Y'all, you can't make this stuff up. Y'all, what? Can you, how would you be feeling if you were a sailor on this ship? Pretty mad. So the sailors ask the obvious question. 
How can we convince your God to stop this? Which has an incredibly simple answer that Jonah knows. What is it? He could go to Nineveh. Jonah could just stop what he's doing and do what God asked him to do. He can go to Nineveh. Simple as that. Question, do you think Jonah offers that as a solution to this ordeal? Of course not. Verse 12, Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So what's Jonah's alternative solution? Just kill me. Just kill me, which actually encapsulates how far he's descended, because I want you to think about why Jonah might say this. How can Jonah ensure that God won't use him to reach the Ninevites? What's farther from Nineveh than even Tarshish? Death. Death. This might sound noble, like, oh, I know it was my fault. That's baloney, y'all. He is doubling down on running from God. He's trying to run as far as he can to get away from Nineveh. And notice he doesn't offer to do this himself. He puts the responsibility on them. Let that sink in. Pure, faithful prophet Jonah would rather make innocent people guilty of his murder than take responsibility for his own actions, change course, and just take God's love to Nineveh. That's dark. Am I right? And finally, Jonah's author does what he does best, which is he closes by just jacking the satire up to 11. Verse 13, we close. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to who? The Lord. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared who? The Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to who? The Lord. And they made vows to him. So these sailors, these pagan, immoral sailors, shatter their expectations, their stereotypes, and just a flood of irony. Do they want to hurt Jonah even after everything he's done without an ounce of remorse? No, they try to save Jonah's life, even crying out, not to their gods anymore, but to who? To Jonah's God, which y'all, LOL, lol, The pagans, not God's prophet, offers the first prayer to Yahweh, the God of Israel, in this story, asking not to be held accountable for listening to his prophet. Do you see the irony there? It's beautiful. And eventually, they they just can't make it back. So they finally listen to God's prophet. They throw Jonah overboard. The storm stops, and get this, they greatly feared God, offered sacrifices, and made vows to him, which implies in the Hebrew worldview that upon landing, they traveled to Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, the only place you can offer sacrifices to Yahweh, to worship him and make lifelong commitments to follow him as their God alone for the rest of their lives. Who talks about worshiping God in this story? Pure, faithful, prophet 
Jonah, who actually does it? The immoral pagan sailors. Whew! Isn't this just the most ironic story you have ever heard? But, 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 remember, Jonah's meant to be a mirror for who? Us. And y'all, I think if we're willing to look at Jonah as our mirror, if we're willing to listen to the word of the Lord on this one, I think this story preaches. See, I think for one, it reveals a very humbling truth which is that God's people can be villains in God's story too. You see, it's very easy for us to think, well, oh, we're chosen. Oh, we were saved by grace. Oh, we must be the good guys. And whatever story we find ourselves are, and y'all, Jonah, this very strange story exists in the Bible to disabuse us of that notion. Who is Jonah? He's just a member of God's people who's refused to be transformed after his conversion, after his experience with God keeping humanity's normal baggage, hate, tribalism, pride, self-centeredness, and just mixing it with a healthy dose of religious dogma. And what's the result? He walks around spouting off religious junk while his actions utterly contradict the God he claims to worship. Anyone seen that before in human history? Yo, that's all of us at times. You don't think you're Jonah? You ever contradicted what you say in the very next sentence? You ever said something, oh, God is good, and then acted like a monster to a friend, a neighbor, a loved one? Never. Never. <laughs> Not me. Oh, no. I worship the God of the sea. No. This is all of us at times. And I think it makes sense because it's easy to turn religion into an intellectual exercise that's just about knowing the right doctrinal beliefs. And that's a dangerous mindset because if we think that, then it is also easy to become people who talk really nicely about religion. Oh, yes, I know Jesus. He made the ocean. While behaving in ways that diametrically oppose what he is trying to do in our world. Apathetically ignoring the disasters we create along the way. And let me tell you, as someone who left Christianity and then returned, everyone else sees such hypocrisies but us when we let that happen. Literally everyone else sees it, except for us. And sure, God still reaches and spiritually transforms these sailors, which, by the way, Jonah's too spiritually dead to even notice in the story, this amazing revival going on all around him. But does Jonah help that process at all? And does that lessen the unnecessary devastation that Jonah brought on innocent people in the process? No. Y'all, the miracle of this story is that God reaches people despite Jonah, the stand-in for his people. And that's a critical warning. Yes, God is great. And we're gonna talk in future weeks about how God can work through our imperfections, how we don't need to be perfect to take part in the story of redemption. That is coming. But in this story, its message is clear that we must take our transformation seriously else we risk becoming villains in a story while thinking we are whole. And that is a disaster for God's people. But Jonah's journey downward, I think beyond that, also hit me on this personal level this week, which is actually what brought to mind Providence Canyon. Because again, when you boil it down, Jonah's just this human who through many small decisions fed his brokenness to the point that inevitably 
It took over his life and overflowed into his world, spiraling him down into a watery grave. And if that was how this story ends, huge bummer, right? But there's actually good news here. Because despite Jonah's best efforts, and y'all, you watched his best efforts to die. This isn't the end of Jonah's story. Because as Jonah sinks to the bottom, he does the only thing that he can. He finally surrenders control, admits he's powerless, and then bam, in that moment of the death of self, God's grace arrives in a very strange way as this big fish to swallow him up and raise him back to life. And suddenly, what by Jonah's power was a situation that would only lead to one place, which is where? To death. By God's grace, that very journey becomes his pathway to true life. It's a strange story, right? And yet, I think if we're self-honest, it's also our story. I mean, I'll just speak for myself. I know it's definitely my story as a recovering addict. We all, over the course of our lives, develop character defects, broken patterns of emotions, thoughts, relationships, behaviors, patterns of rage, control, judgmentalism, self-pity, selfishness, etc. We develop these not by choice, usually. Usually they form from trauma or as a coping mechanism. However, there does come a moment in our lives where we become aware of them and choose to keep feeding them anyway. Again, I'll just speak for myself. There was a moment where I became aware that I had control issues, that I wanted to escape reality through any chemical necessary, that I was an angry dude who was very afraid. I became aware of that, and yet, instead of confronting them, I chose to ignore them or explain them away. And y'all, guess what happened? They grew, and they grew, and they grew, slowly but surely, until they formed this canyon in my life that could not be ignored any longer. Y'all, I will never forget standing at the precipice of this abyss of personal and relational wreckage dominating the landscape of my life, unable to, with self-honesty, ask how did this happen because it was suddenly very clear that my best thinking, choice by choice, had gotten me there. Anyone else been there before? The fact is, we all experience Jonah's story eventually. I got bad news if you think you won't. Every human being reaches a moment, be it through something breaking in their lives or the point of death where our tools for controlling our lives fundamentally fail us. And y'all, that moment is gonna feel desperate. It feels like death. Where we must accept what's always been true, that we're powerless and need a power greater than ourselves to do what we cannot do for ourselves, which is pull us from the depths of our choosing and restore us to life. And that's Jonah's unexpected good news. Because it reminds us that in God's story, the very moment where our resources fail is where we discover the true depths of God's love. A reality that then transcends intellectual exercise. That in God's story, rock bottom, paradoxically, is where God's grace works best. Because at the end of ourself, we finally surrender and hear God whisper, I am with you, I love you, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, I am made strong. 
follow me. Your story isn't over. It's just become because I'm in the business of resurrecting life from death. Amen? Y'all, am I preaching yet? Y'all, that changes everything. This gospel story of ours, this story of Jonah. And I don't know where you need to hear this story. But I do know that whether you're still bolting for Tarshish or you're sinking to the depths of yourself saying nothing more than I can't do this anymore, that this story offers you good news about a God who does not stop trying to reach even rebellious, stupid Jonah, which means it's also a story about a God who won't stop trying to reach you and me and every other schmuck on the face of his earth. And all we have to do is to say yes to it, to lay ourselves down and let God's loving grace lift us back to life in a way that we could not do for ourselves. And y'all, that's good news. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.